welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 66. My God, can you believe it? 66 episodes already. I'm like two-thirds of the way to a gold star for 100 episodes, which means nothing in podcasting. Isn't that great? Anyway, um, thank you so much for tuning in. As always, I'm so happy that uh, I have an excellent returning guest, a guest that many of you will know. But before I can jump into that, I want to make a little pitch for Counterpunch. Look at what's happening in the world right now. It is the dawn of the age of Trump. Uh, it is the the end of the age of the Clintons. It is the madness that is this uh, this, this recount effort going on. It is, uh, you know, obviously Syria and uh, the death of Castro and so many things happening in the world. And truly, I can't name any media outlet anywhere that I can definitely 100% depend on to give me the kind of analysis that I want in these times, except for a little lonely outpost in the wilderness called Counterpunch. Counterpunch really depends on the listeners of this show, the subscribers to the magazine, donations through the PayPal and the other mechanisms online. It truly does depend on those, and even though the uh, fun drive is, is over, I think it's always is a good idea to support independent media support it now as look it's under assault look at the mccarthyism we're seeing now the washington post running stories tarring and feathering all kinds of media outlets i mean we are in very very volatile times and well if you ask me personally Counterpunch is needed now more than ever, so do consider giving a donation, do consider uh, getting a subscription to the magazine, or buying any of uh, a number of great books off of the website. One of those great books is about the, um, the, the rise and fall of the Sandernistas, of the Sanders Revolution. It is entitled Bernie and the Sandernistas, Field Notes from a Failed Revolution. It's by this uh, very obscure silver-tongued gentleman with the heart of gold. His name is Jeff Sinclair. He is the editor of Counterpunch. He is an author, and he is on the line. Welcome back, Jeff. Great to be here, Eric. Number I... 66, you know. Absolutely. Two-thirds of the way to, uh, you know, beating the devil, I guess. <laughs> either, either, <laughs> either that or, you know, putting on my iron shirt and chasing the devil out of the earth. That's a Max Romeo reference. I got nothing from you, Jeff. <laughs> nothing. All right. Anyway, um, it's like one step forward, two steps back with you. Nothing? Okay. Still nothing. Okay, great. <laughs> two Max Romeo references for you in the first five minutes of this show. All right, Jeff, let's talk about this book. This is a – I mean, this is a <laughs> – this is a real kick in the eye, I think, in, in a lot of ways, and that's a Bauhaus reference. But um, I think that this book is really necessary because in some ways you want to call it a post-mortem, uh, but in other ways I think that it is a really critical perspective on a lot of the things that we have seen take place throughout this election cycle. So before we get into any of the specifics... Let's talk a little bit generally about this book, Bernie and the Sandernistas. What is this an effort to do? I mean, it's not just chronicling the rise and fall of Bernie Sanders. It's more than that, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, really, I think Bernie was a known quantity to a lot of us. What was, I think, uh, the, the real phenomenon 
was was the second part of it, and that was the Sandernistas. Uh, this this strange, you know, uh, energetic uh, movement that coalesced around Sanders that had to surprise him. It surprised me. Um, and really the, the, the idea of putting my reporting on Sanders into a book was more about probing the psyche of that movement uh, rather than Sanders himself. Um, and we can talk about both of those. But uh, Sanders has now, you know, shackled himself to the Democratic Party leadership as a lieutenant of Charles Schumer, the senator from Citibank. So, you know, he's gone on to his fate. But what's going to happen um, to the movement that that coalesced around him for for eight months? Uh, that's the real question. Uh, are they going to, you know, continue to move in in the uh, the era of Trump? Um, so I think it's it's important to understand who they were, what energized them, um, and uh, where they might go. You know, not to get too philosophical about it early in this conversation, but I guess the question I would like to pose to you, and I don't necessarily have the answer myself, um, but is are the Sandernistas a movement? I mean, you use the word movement, but are they a movement or are they just the remnants of a campaign? I mean, those are not the same thing. If you look at the history of, let's say, you know, Eugene McCarthy in 1968, or you know, uh, uh, even the 1972 McGovern campaign, or whatever. I mean, even Jesse Jackson in '84. Were these movements, or were these simply campaigns that seized on a moment and then disappeared into the ether, as campaigns do? Yeah. Well, I think, in a lot of ways, they're both. Um, and it depends on, you know, what survives the campaign, right? And where these movements, I mean, the Sanders movement didn't come from nowhere, you know. Uh, it, we had the Occupy movement laying a lot of the groundwork uh, for what coalesced around Bernie. And um, you're talking to somebody, and in terms of McCarthy, you're talking to somebody who, you know, ran Eugene McCarthy's independent campaign in Indiana uh, in 1976 uh, at the age of 16. Um, so, you know, I've been through a few of these, and there wasn't much of a movement then, Eric. Well, you failed. You, you, fail, you but, failed to stop Mike Pence, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put well, that I one on you. Well, I to stop, and and Mike Pence and I actually uh, debated each other when we were both in a uh, kind of mock Congress um, at uh, Columbus North High School. Mike Mike was uh, grew up in Columbus, which is uh, a kind of very strange city in, in, in central Indiana, home of uh, Cummins Diesel, um, viciously anti-worker and anti-union company. Um, but yeah, we, we, uh, we debated each other, and he was a right-winger back then, although a right-wing Catholic. Um, he went off to Hanover College down on banks of the Ohio River, and his wife turned him into uh, an evangelical. But I've known Pence, you know, for 
what would that be now? You know, like uh, 40 years. You've um, known Pence longer than Pence has known Pence. I think so. Yeah. No, I knew him when he was, you know, still Mike Pence and, and, uh, Mikey you know, P. <laughs> <laughs> and and not this sort of uh you know strange strange creature that was kind of manufactured on uh on talk radio in in indiana he really but, was he looks like an action figure for a young lawyer he does he, he looks like he came out of uh he came out of you know some 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 mold somewhere you yeah, know like, the, that, like yeah. the orcs in lord of the rings yeah <laughs> um so, so, uh, I mean, you have two two of the the strangest hair pieces in political history, both on the uh, both in in the White House at the same time. It's it's um, hair management's going to be a big issue for make, this administration. Make the comb over great again. <laughs> so, um, so Jeff, um, so okay, so we 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 asked the question about whether this is a movement or whether this was just a campaign. And I, 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 there's a reason I asked that question and it's not because, and I just want to say out front, I have a lot of friends who were Bernie supporters. I have a lot of good feelings towards much of what was said in that campaign and looking at Trump now and looking at the disaster of these last couple of months. I mean, it definitely makes Bernie Sanders look pretty, pretty palatable by comparison. But the question remains, did Bernie use these people? I mean, was this, was this a yet another hoodwink operation by the Democratic Party. Well, What's your take on that? Well, I, he tried to use them, right? But he, he failed because, you know, we did not see the Sandinistas save Hillary's ass, did we? Um, I mean, they didn't, you know, when when blew, <laughs> when Bernie blew the whistle, you know, they, they all didn't come ran, running. And so I, I think that gives a measure of hope that uh, that there may be, you know, the remnants of a movement, you know, out there waiting on, you know, on a new call, uh, a, a new leader, uh, a, a new spark to reignite them. And may, maybe it'll be Trump, you know, and maybe that, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, what happens and, and, you know, you see it now, there are a lot of reports out today that, for example, the major environmental groups have have had like record fundraising over the past two weeks. And, you know, now they're ready to fight. They've ena enabled Obama's policies for eight years and now they're ready to fight. You know, that's standard, well, that's maybe standard they're not all showing up at, you know, standing rock yet. But, yeah. you know, after the inauguration of Trump, you know, they'll be there to fight him. And, you know, there's some truth to that, right? Uh, I mean, if you look back during the Reagan administration, I mean, you know, I came out of the environmental movement, so I'm, I'm really familiar with, you know, with its growth and its ebbs and its flows. It was at its peak in terms of political power during the 12 years of Reagan and Bush, um, who had a lot of horrible ideas. They had some villainous characters in, in the cabinet, you know, James Watt, John Crowell, you know, heading up the, uh, the overseeing the Forest Service, Earl Butts, you know, at, at the Department of Agriculture. And they were pummeled. You know, they got very little of what they wanted um, over a 12 year period. It was one environmental victory after another. You had, you know, uh, protests, you know, on the, on the mall that were drawing, you know, uh, 
hundreds of thousands of people on environmental issues and anti-nuclear power. Um, and so, you know, it, it, there's no question that, uh, the, you know, at that time when there was still something of a, of a grassroots environmental movement, you know, it fought back and paralyzed them. Now, the problem is that you have had in the, in the intervening years, um, a diminution of grassroots politics across the board. And, you know, Clinton and Gore basically killed the environmental movement as any kind of effective oppositional force. Um, there was a, a, you know, an uprising, you know, basically seven and a half years in the Clinton time on the streets of Seattle. Um, that didn't have many legs. It didn't, it didn't go very far. And, you know, another eight years of Obama when we've heard just silence, you know, the, the, the sound of complicity uh, for eight years is, I mean, record levels of, you know, oil drilling, uh, natural gas drilling. We, we've had, seen the Gulf of Mexico largely destroyed, <laughs> you know, and uh, the birth of fracking. Yeah. Uh, so and just silence and complicity. So now a lot of money is going uh, into these groups, but they don't have they don't have the grassroots infrastructure that they once did. And this is across the board, I think, for all social movements in the U.S. My theory is that the farther away we've gotten from the um, from the civil rights movement, the civil rights movement is basically the template that has been used for the successful, you know, uh, social and, and political movements of the 60s and the 70s, whether it's the anti-war movement or, you know, the environmental movement or the anti-nuke movement. They were all basically based on the lessons learned during the civil rights movement. And the farther away we get from that, uh, the more vaporous the template becomes. And um, and the, the sort of organizing knowledge and infrastructure um, has lar largely eroded away. So that's going to be a big question. Now, you know, you, we do have, you know, a, that co coalescence of the Sandernistas uh, during the Sanders campaign um, is something of a of a template. Now, it was all, you know. It, it didn't function, though, as, as, as a movement during the campaign. I mean, they showed up at rallies, you know, in, uh, you know, at universities, largely university towns is where Bernie liked to go. I mean, he, he did very little in sort of working class communities, uh, despite his talk. It's one of the themes of the book, really, that, uh, you know, the Sandernistas aren't really working class America. They aren't the underclass, you know, that. They're, they're largely people who have credit scores, you know, which means that you've had some kind of bank account and credit cards, you know, you know, you've got debt, you know, well, th that means that you're, you know, in the middle class, right? Um, so that's going to be the challenge. I mean, they're, the people are there still, I think the energy is there. And because of Trump winning and not Hillary winning, uh, that that's been amped up. But where did they go? Um, I hope they don't end up being lured into these NGOs who have been uh, essentially the lapdogs of neoliberalism for, you know, upwards of 20 years. 
um, because that would just be go, you know, like going into a kind of playpen. Um, you know, I hope that there's, but but there's not really any, you know, there's not any other force out there or or leader that they can coalesce around. And you know, Sanders, that's his greatest failing to me. You know, going from you know whatever he used to call himself an independent, an independent socialist, to now being as uh, I quote someone on his campaign in the book saying, a Democrat for life. You know, what? who the hell would become a Democrat for life at this point? You know, it's a party on life support. Yeah. But it's, you, you're going to, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're 70 plus old. You're going to donate your kidney. I mean, yeah. You know, it's this? like, it's, it, you know, I've, I've, I've decided now that it is 1865. I will now no longer support abolition. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, Eric, I mean, on the other hand, you never know when these things are, you know, are going to emerge. I mean, I, I like to think of, uh, and I was just editing a piece by, um, <clears throat> the man who used to call himself, uh, subcomandante Marcos and now calls himself subcomandante Galliano, um, for this weekend edition on counterpunch. Uh, but I mean, the Zapatistas, you know, emerged from the Lacandon and said, we're here, you know, deal with us. Now, obviously that didn't, it wasn't something that like, I mean, that's how it appeared to the outside world, you know, who that this is like aliens, you know, landing on the planet. Who are these people? What do they want? Um, but there were 10 years of organizing going on in the jungle before that happened. And that's really what, you know, the Sandinistas don't have at this point, you know, is organizing into uh, a political force. That's that's really what's needed. Well, that's the question. I think that's really the question, because um, that's actually what I was going to get at, Jeff. Do you do you believe? And I don't know the answer to this. Do you believe that uh, a a legitimate political force that is truly progressive in a truly progressive direction can that even exist in the united states within the confines of electoral politics that's a question that i keep raising with people not because i want to just you know poo poo every candidate or poo poo every election or whatever but because i think that's a real question that people on the left need to ask themselves all of the hours the man hours man and woman hours all of the money all of the time all of the emotional and psychic energy that is expended in these campaigns that is seemingly always for naught is that really what the left, such as it is, should be doing? I don't think that's going to happen in electoral politics, no. Um, no, I, I mean, where is that going to happen, Eric? I mean, that's, I, that's what I'm implying, you know, exactly. No, yeah. no it's, I mean, there is not, and this is, and, and I get back to this, this is the con, I think, that Sanders, to his shame, perpetrated on his movement. It, hey, it, we can both agree that Sanders raised many important issues during the campaign. No doubt. Right. And, and he looks, you know, as a force of opposition, he, you know, he is a, a much more serious uh, force that, that Trump potentially could have to deal with than, you know, Clinton would have ever been. Um, 
he did not use his campaign as a sledgehammer against neoliberalism and interventionist foreign policy. He, he was unwilling, and the real question is why? Why was he unwilling to do that? Yeah. And instead, what he, you know, what was it that he, he had to know that he had no chance of winning the nomination. This, this, the math from the superdelegates told him that. Um, he knew that the DNC itself was conspiring, conspiring against him at every level, um, and that he wasn't going to win. So, but he allowed his his movement to believe that there was a chance yes. of winning. And in order to do, and in order to do that, to stay in the game that he was never going to win, he ended up pulling punches that could have knocked the system silly. I think you know from the very first, you know, when he refused to confront Hillary on her emails, and that may seem like a petty thing to me as a journalist, as somebody who's fought for the Freedom of Information Act. You know, uh, having, you know, public. You know, federal emails, emails that are part of your job in a private server is a straightaway violation of FOIA, seems to me. Um, no doubt. And on that alone, Sanders, you know, that that basic issue of, of government, the integrity of the governmental process, he should have gone after her relentlessly. But he didn't. He didn't go after her on foreign policy. He didn't. I don't. Did we ever hear him mention uh the words neoliberalism. And, and people say, oh, you know, Jeffrey, you talk about neoliberalism. Nobody knows what that means. Well, he had eight months to explain what neoliberalism is to a, to a youthful movement that, you know, was being, that is being pulverized by the forces of neoliberalism and maybe they don't know, you know, what to call it, what name you want to affix to it. But Sanders could have used this campaign um, to educate them in how the Democratic Party had been taken over uh, by these uh, forces of the new post-industrial capitalism. You and know, he didn't. I don't want to I don't want to make this seem like a superficial question, because I guess in a way it is. But I mean, <sighs> Bernie's an older man. I mean, what did he, what, what is he, what was he holding in reserve for? I mean, for what, a, a, a presidential run at the age of 80? I mean, come on, this was, this was Bernie's moment. This was Bernie's, you know, literally, this was his window, much more so even than Hillary Clinton. This was his window, his moment to finally not only break through the, um, you know, into the mainstream, but to break through into the mainstream with some radical ideas that would leave a lasting mark. And the fact that he, it's not that he didn't successfully do that. He deliberately chose not to do that. And that is, at least from my perspective, unforgivable. I think it is unforgivable. Um, and taking a position in the leadership now, you know, after, look, there was a huge opportunity. He could have had, there could have been the second coming of Sanders, right? After Hillary's defeat. Yep. You know, he could have said, this is it. You know, either you change this party or I'm leaving and I'm taking my movement with me. And Chuck Schumer 
I mean, there is no, the guy is, you know, a, a creature of Wall Street, but more, much more so than Hillary was. You know, Hillary was a latecomer to it. But, you know, Schumer was, is like their, their creature. He's right there with them. Um, to accept a, a, a position underneath Schumer is just, I think, uh, should be unforgivable to anybody who vested so much energy and, and hope into Sanders. Um, because it just means that there's going to be no dismantling of the party. The neoliberal, we know now, I mean, Pelosi net worth of, you know, $48 million just reconsecrated as the minority leader for life. And that's what they're going to be. They're going to be in the minority for life as long as they keep pursuing, you know, these failed policies of what, neoliberalism, which punished their core, their base. But what is it? Jeff, what is it? What is making him do this? I mean, is well, is he being blackmailed behind the scenes? I mean, no, I, I can't I, think of any I, good reason that we can that we can know right now for why Bernie Sanders is such a coward. Well, you'd have to get him on the couch, right? I mean, there are those great books that uh, I forget the, the 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 Freudian psychiatrist wrote Bush on the couch and. Um, I think he did when Obama on the couch wasn't, which wasn't nearly as good. But uh, I think you've seen these flaws in Sanders from the very beginning. I mean, Alex Coburn knew him much better uh, than I did because Alex spent a lot of, of time in Vermont. Yeah, what did Alex call him? The the hot air factory from hot Burlington. Air factory from, yeah, <laughs> and so you know he he, he saw him as mayor of Bur uh, uh, Burlington, uh, and then you know Alex and I were together you know, writing together by the time Bernie got to Congress. And, you know, I mean, you just look at the beginning of his career. He was a, comp he says he's a maverick, an outsider, an independent, but he was a complete Clinton loyalist on the issues, the, the issues that mattered. You know, I mean, here is the, the, the independent, you know, socialist from Vermont you know, one of his first major votes is to endorse the bombing of the independent socialist country of Serbia. You know, bomb, let's bomb the kids off the bridge or, you know, blow up the, the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. You know, and he had, you know, his many of his longtime staffers, Jeremy Brecher, you know, one of them resigned over it. Uh, but that did not deter him for some, from supporting the, the uh, Clinton's crime bill. Um, it didn't deter him from supporting. And, you know, I write about this as a chapter in the book, you know, Bernie voted three times to overthrow Saddam's regime in Iraq. He endorsed the hideous genocidal sanction regime imposed by, you know, Clinton, Gore and Madeleine Albright. That makes it really hard uh, to skewer Hillary for her vote to go to war um, you know, under the Bush administration. Really, the only difference is, you know, Clinton was president and Bernie was a Democratic Party loyalist, even when he said he wasn't a member of the party. So that this is not a new phenomenon. In other words, uh, Eric, the, the fact that that he would pull his punches during uh, the campaign with Clinton, um, essentially play nice um, and was, you know, anytime she 
counterattacked, you know, accused him of, you know, playing too rough with her, he backed off. Um, I don't think it's, you know, he's being blackmailed. I, I think that he really, you know, he he really is a Democrat of the great society era. Uh, that's what he, you know, he's a believer in, in the, you know, Johnson party. Um, and that's, that's, that's the kind of prelapsarian, you know, democratic party that he longs to return to. And there's no going back to it. Nor do I uh, want to. No, I, no, you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't, because, you know, we're going to give you a, a compromise, you know, Civil Rights Act for, you know, waging a genocidal war in Vietnam. You yeah, know. exactly. You know, I, I, I want to ask one one more question before we jump to the break. But, um, you know, the reason that I the reason that I'm going to ask this question is because this is a question that's been asked of me a number of times. Um, why are you so hard on Bernie? What are you getting? What What are you getting out of this? Why Why yeah. do you Why do you always want to take down Bernie, the only voice for anything resembling progressive politics in in the United States, certainly at least in this uh, campaign season? So, what's what, what What's your beef? Well, I think he's a hypocrite. Uh, he's a hypocrite who who led his movement into the dungeon of the very system. They were fighting, you know, what do you want to call? I mean, I don't know what you call that. Is that Marshall Patan? <laughs> Is that, uh, you know, Neville Chamberlain? Uh, or, I, I don't the just historical. A honey, just a honeypot. Yeah. I, so, I mean, he, he, how could you not, you know, criticize him? Uh, you know, and it's, it's a great betray, it's a great betrayal of the movement that coalesced around him. Uh, I don't think he built it. It, you know, he be, he was a kind of, you know, uh, strange magnet that drew these particles toward toward him, and uh, he he really led them right off the cliff. And I I think that uh, he he needs to continue to pay a price for that. Yeah, absolutely. Now the the other the other question though um, about this and. Believe me, I have read people writing this. Literally, people are arguing that Bernie may be the smartest man in America because he knew that Clinton was not going to beat Trump and that he would hold on to his position in the Senate so that he could block everything Trump tries to do. What do you say to that, Mr. Sinclair? <laughs> Wasn't Bernie one of the first to say he was willing to work with Trump? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that's going to uh, that's going to uh, to look about uh, three months from now. <laughs> oh, you just I mean, don't want to. You just don't want to recognize I mean, I Bernie's think, genius. Know, uh, I, yeah, you know, I, I know he's a he's a deep thinker, but uh, I mean, actually, I, I I don't think he is. You know, that much of a deep thinker. Actually, I think he lost almost every debate with Hillary when he should have, you know, left her on. You know, he should have knocked her out. You know, in in the first round in each of those debates. Um, he he essentially gave the same stump speech over and over. I mean, it was like yeah. in the reruns after three, you know, Sanders speeches. It was the same one over and over again. I don't know who wrote it for him. You know, Robert Borisage, uh, my friend James Ridgway calls him boring sausage. But, uh, you know, and. Well, think about it this way. Think about it. Think, think about it this way. 
people whose politics align much more closely with Bernie still preferred to watch Trump on TV. Well, I talk about this, that, that uh, there were two kind of different, if you watched a, a Sanders rally, it was, I called it that magic feeling, which is the, the <laughs> I know, the first chapter of the book. And it's, it's like a, a, a rave is going on. Uh, it's, there was a kind of hypnotism, I guess you would call it. Uh, and then you contrast that, which is not what you want really out of a political rally. Glow stick um, politics. <laughs> um, he had a kind of narcotic, uh, which is great, it, 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 like a Grateful Dead concert, but uh, that's not what you want out of a political rally. And what you got in, uh, and, and this is, I think, I mean, Bernie showed his age, right? So what is the attraction? I found that the Bernie rallies I went to, his most, there's a, a misnomer about them being Bernie bros, because I thought that his most uh, devoted adherents his, his real acolytes seem to be women from the age of like 25 to 35. I mean, they, that seemed to be the real core, uh, the real hardcore. Bernie, you know, Bernie, Bernie is my bae. Bernie is my bae. Yeah. And so is he the good father, the, the good, not to get too Freudian, but you know, what, what was the dynamic, um, uh, at work there where these women would, uh, and, and this was a, you know, true across that demographic was a complete rejection and repudiation of Hillary Clinton, her style, her politics, uh, her, you know, uh, condescending demeanor. I mean, that was just clear. She could never reach, uh, these women, but what was the appeal to Bernie, it wasn't just that he was the, you know, the anti-Hillary. I, I, I think that there is some kind of uh, dynamic that he was a kind of safe man, you know, <laughs> who uh, empathized. And, and I think that, that Bernie did have a quality of, of empathizing with people that we've just lost in our politics. Um, sure. And I don't I, I just want to say and, for and the that, record, I don't think. I don't think that Bernie was disingenuous entirely with everything that he said. I think he genuinely believes a lot of these things, and I think that he does have emotional investment in, in a number of issues, but uh, that may be on the personal side. The translation yeah. in his politics is something different. Yeah, that's something different. But So I think that, that there was a, uh, a communion, I think, between many of his supporters and Bernie. With Trump, it was like an orgy. There was a uh, an inexplicable uh, sexual, you know, in all of its, you know, ramifications, charge to his rallies. You know, uh, I don't know what Freud would call it that, you know, oceanic feeling or something. But they were, you know, they were charged, and and we saw it, and you know the, you know the sort of violent nature uh, of some of them. But uh, these were really charged events yeah. uh, that you didn't get with uh, with Bernie. Bernie, um, Bernie. Bernie rallies are... Bernie politics is basically uh, ecstasy and glow sticks. Trump's, <laughs> Trump's is like smoking meth with Motorhead when carrying exactly. a shotgun. Yeah, 
exactly. And uh, damn, I think I would, and, I think I'd rather. Well, and I think you one. know when have we seen this? And this is, I think, you know, uh, it's why I've gone back and, and read this really interesting bi- new biography of Hitler's uh, early years by Volker called Hitler: The Ascent. Because when have we in American politics seen this kind of fervor around uh, a candidate? Where you also have a kind of street army to, you know, enforce your insane policies for you. Uh, I mean, it's going to be a really interesting, you know, couple of. I think the first two years uh, are going to be fraught with an incredible amount of energy and tension, and, you know, I mean, from the way Trump is putting together his cabinet, his core supporters are going to be disappointed on day one. I mean, tragic, you know, tragically disappointed on day one. And and what happens then? I well, mean, that, they're yeah. all met, they're all messed up politically speaking. What happens when that starts to break apart? That's I exactly. I actually brought up that exact question in multiple podcasts in the last couple of weeks. So uh, let's actually leave that for the second half of the show. Uh, I'm going to take a break here. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio, my conversation with Jeff Sinclair. Get yourself a copy of the book, Bernie and the Sandernistas, Field Notes from a Failed Revolution. You want to talk about supporting Counterpunch? You want to support alternative media? Get yourself a copy of that book. That's a good way to do it. Anyway, uh, stick with us. We'll be right back.
here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Jeff Sinclair. We're talking about the new book, Bernie and the Sandernistas, Field Notes from a Failed Revolution. I feel like I have to reiterate that point after the break because, well... uh... I'm pretending this is radio. This is all make-believe, people. I'm just pretending to be a host here, and I'm pretending that this is radio, and I'm enjoying that, and I hope you're enjoying that as well. Um, Jeff, let's turn to the point you were making just before the break because I think it's a really important one. If you look at the administration that's being put together by Trump right now, I mean, this is... <laughs> this reminds me again of of just how deluded so many people have been about Trump, even people on the left, even people that I know, you know, um, acting as if Trump was really, truly going to, you know, quote unquote, drain the swamp. And here we go. We, we haven't even started the administration and he's already imported alligators from the four corners of the world. And creatures from the Black Lagoons. It's, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, just today, Nuchin, his father, so Nuchin, choice for the Secretary of Treasury, Steve Nuchin, his father was one of the top uh, <laughs> partners in Goldman Sachs. Little Stevie goes goes off to Yale, I think. Edits the Yale Daily News, right? I mean, Yale, right? Member of Skull and Bones, uh, you know, then goes and becomes a, a partner at Goldman Sachs, um, makes, you know, shitload of money, goes off on his own, you know, for as a hedge funder, makes oodles more money. Joins with uh, John Paulson and George Soros, bugaboo of, you know, of Steve Bannon and, and Alex Jones, to buy, I think it's Indy Mac Bank, one of the big, one of the big bank failures, uh, I think, of, of the 90s. So they invest in this bank, which becomes One West. They make, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars off of this bank, which has a reputation as one of the most vicious foreclosure operations in the country uh, and uh, a notorious uh, reputation for redlining. You know, they're not doing uh, any business in, you know, black and Hispanic communities. So he makes makes a killing off of that and then goes to Hollywood. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> to finance, you know, big movies for big time liberals. And now, you know, the working class blue collar people. Maybe it's not being reported on Fox News or, or any of their normal outlets. But, uh, you know, this guy is going to be running the economy with his buddy, Wilbur Ross, another billionaire who, uh, you know, bailed out Trump no conflict of interest there. And one of the conditions of the bailout was that uh, they screw over all the workers, you know, in those casinos. Uh, it's, it's really, it's, it's really staggering, but uh, um, it's, but, but, you know, it's going to be fun because I mean, if you believe in the, you know, the, the old Maoist theory of heightening the contradictions, heightening the internal contradictions, I mean, Trump's certainly doing that to himself. 
Yeah, you know, it's 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 sort of that uh, push and pull, you know, between the the you know the value in heightening the contradictions and the danger of uh, of a false faith in accelerationism. You know, it's sort of that. <laughs> it's like which right. way which way do you want to look at it? Because uh, you know, obviously, uh, accelerationism that is the idea that uh, you would you, you would want things to get worse in order to open the window for revolutionary action. Uh, that has has very yeah. very severe consequences in the real world well of course it does but you know i mean i think the brakes are off of uh off of the train i, I don't where sure are the seems that way i mean you know we, we, <laughs> and uh it's an opportunity you know there are lots of opportunities for new political movements to arise out of this uh situation because the, the democrats seem completely clueless to how to confront what's staring them down down the throat. Um, and... uh, let me ask you this question though: uh, Do you do you really believe that they're clueless, or as I would I would contend, it's not so much that they're clueless; it's that this is all they know how to do. That they can't do. They're they're constitutionally well, incapable of anything but this. Well, yeah, because they're believers in neoliberalism. I mean, you've cleansed, basically cleansed ethnically or, you know, ideologically purified the party of, of true progressives, right? And so the neoliberals have, have held sway. This was, I think, one of Obama's, you know, Obama's could at least, you know, campaigned in 2008 as neoliberalism light, right? Uh, kinder and gentler, you know, machine gun hand or something like that. Uh, but his one of his greatest failings, um, and it's because he was institutionally incapable of doing it, I guess, was to purge the DNC of the Clinton element, right? So they continued, the true believers in Clintonian neoliberalism continued to control the party all through Obama time. And... Um, Whatever, you know, sort of progressive inklings or minor initiatives um, he had were essentially killed from the inside. You know, I heard a lot of stories at the time of the health care um, bill was being constructed that uh, a lot of the, this was, you know, relatively... Soon after Obama's election, there were still, you know, very bitter feelings between uh, the Obama crowd and the Clinton crowd. And the Clinton crowd really wanted this thing, you know, to fail. They wanted it to be an embarrassment. They, they, they wanted him to be so uh, tarnished by it that he, they, they really believed that Hillary could, you know, could challenge him in 2012. Or that he would, you know, be so humbled that, you know, he wouldn't even run again. She could move in. People like Sidney Blumenthal, right? Um, so, I mean, the public act option, which, you know, might have done something to sort of salvage Obamacare, um, you know, it was a, a essentially annihilated from inside the administration. And... Um, 
Yeah. So, I mean, look, the, the, the neoliberals control the infrastructure of the party. They control the, you know, the freshets of money. You have the AFL-CIO, which I think is completely impotent, uh, endorse Nancy Pelosi as minority leader in the House when they had a, you know, I mean, Tim Ryan, I mean, I, you know, I don't he's no radical by any means, but uh, he's fresh. He was fresh blood. He's from Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, he's a, a, a big labor guy. And they endorsed Pelosi. You know, a leading neoliberal. Uh, and and it's no coincidence that the the fortunes of, you know, labor are in freefall, given their, you know, shackled themselves to these neoliberals. And they're just, I mean, they're unwilling to cut the cord. I want to, I want to return to uh, Bernie Sanders since it's the subject of the book, because I, I, I want to be fair uh, to Bernie's supporters and to progressives in general. And I want to have a little bit of um, self-reflection if we can, because God knows that uh, this campaign has, this campaign season has dragged on for seemingly 40 years in the desert. And, um, but I do want to ask this question. And I asked Paul street this when he was on the show a few weeks ago, right after the election. Um, And I want to ask you this as well. Is there any part of you that in hindsight wishes you wouldn't have been so hard on Bernie given everything that's happened, given the rise of Trump and all of the rest of that? Is there any part of you that wonders what if we would have all on the, you know, let's call it the radical left or whatever. What if we would have really pushed for Bernie in a more united way? Would that have changed anything? Now, I'm my. I have my answer to that question, but I push, want to hear push yours. for him. Push for him. What to That's to, what to, to to accept Jill Stein's offer to you know run as the Green Party candidate. I mean, where where do you want us to? I mean, we were trying, you know, to to push him. I said very early on, you know, uh, I, I'm I'm in, you know, I created my own group. Abhor, you know, uh, anybody but Hillary. Right. And my and I, I. Obviously, Bernie was going to be a hard sell to me because I had watched the serious compromises he had made in the House and the Senate. But, you know, I was fully prepared to get on board with him if he would wage a good, you know, the good war against Hillary and the neoliberals. And he failed to do that. Um, so I don't know. You know, no, I, I, I wish we'd have been harder on him. Um, because, uh, it, it may have, you know, gotten through, I don't think it would, uh, but it may have gotten through being complicit, being softer on him was going to only enable this, uh, you know, his strategy of being, uh, this sort of <laughs> kind of wimpish, uh, foil to Clinton. Um, when he needed to be much tougher, he needed to knock her out, and he didn't do it. You know, look, we didn't knock Bernie out. You know, the Democratic Party knocked Bernie out from, you know, the first moment, you know, he, he you know, stepped on stage. You know, they, the entire system was arrayed against him, and he didn't fight the system. 
And uh, I think that's his greatest failing. So no, I don't, I don't have any regrets. But I do say, you know, if you read the book, you'll see that I, I do have an apologia to the Sandinistas. Um, because I think that, uh, in especially some of my early writings, I was, you know, kind of dismissive of them um, as being a, a naive and, and cultish following. But Certainly by the end of uh, the campaign and the early days of the convention, you saw, I, I think, a real awakening um, to the fact that they um, were being betrayed by him. And the, the fact that they, you know, stood up, the delegates, many of them from, you know, my own Oregon delegation and, and the Washington state delegation, and protested inside the convention hall um, in Philadelphia uh, was a, a real sign, I think, that um, maybe not that they'd grown up, but you know that they were more substantial maybe than I gave them credit to begin with. And that uh, um, there's a possibility that that movement might be able to evolve, adapt, and endure in the age of Trump when we're really going to need them. Um, and, you know, that's, that's my hope. Um, and I, I think that, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see them now as, as being acolytes for Bernie um, as he, you know, has his new role of outreach, you know, for the Democratic Party. I mean, that's a kind of spooky, you know, I, I, I see him as the kind of outreach. It's like Nosferatu or something. Yeah, Nosferatu is outreach for the local blood. Exactly. Bank. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, the the reason I asked that question, obviously, I agree with all of that, and I I don't have any regret whatsoever about being particularly hard on Bernie. And obviously, for me personally, um, with my sort of history uh, as far as anti-war activism goes, I mean, as far as far as I'm concerned. Bernie crossed every red line I have as far as support being supportive of imperialism and supportive of war. But be that as it may, the reason I the reason I really want to ask that question is because of this this question about purity. We heard this over and over and over again. Ah, you people on the far left, you're right. just purists. You're just purists. You want you want your perfect candidate. You won't vote yeah, for anybody yeah. if he's not Lenin or right. something like that. You know, right. and. I think that this is an important question to engage with now that this is all really over. Is what the radical left in places like Counterpunch, which, by the way, just for listeners, take a look at the reporting on Bernie Sanders throughout the early part of this campaign and actually throughout the campaign and compare Counterpunch's coverage with the coverage that you have in other uh, allegedly left-wing you know, alternative media outlets. And I think you'll find something very interesting about Counterpunch. But that being said, um, I think that we need to answer this question now. Is what we were saying about Bernie being purists or is what we were saying about Bernie being dedicated to the progressive movement? Uh, I don't, I don't find, you know, the accusation of being purist, uh, you know, a pejorative. Who's, who's going to, you know, and people say, well, what, you know, you know, you're an ideologue. You know, what's my ideology? I'm anti-war. I'm, I'm like anti-death, <laughs> you know, 
Uh, you know, you, that's I mean, these are these are lines that just should not be crossed. Or if they're going to be crossed, they ought to set off tripwires. And, you know, maybe that's our function is to set off these tripwires, because if you're going to um, sort of s swallow you know, your your beliefs in a primary campaign, what are you going to swallow, you know, in the second year <laughs> yeah. of a presidency? We yeah. saw that with Obama, right? Yeah. I mean, oh, you know, and look, you know, I'll say I, you know, Coburn, anti-Obama from the first time he saw him, you know, I, you know, I was, I didn't have thrills, you know, running up my legs the way Chris Matthews did. But uh, to me, it was important that, you know, you know, a black president who was, you know, <laughs> something of a liberal, uh, that seemed an important thing to me. I was willing to get really willing to give him a chance. And I swallowed a lot of, you know, of crap to do that and was pummeled by, you know, by Coburn mercilessly almost almost every day of, you know, that 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 uh, that campaign against uh, against McCain. But, you know, when you start you're compromising during a primary campaign, then it goes on for eight years. And, you know, uh, you're, you're seeing, you know, what is it, you know, we've got at least eight official wars. I think he just declared two more, you know, countries, you know, targets of war, you know, here at the end of his administration, he's expanded his assassination program. So number. He wanted a round number. He wanted a round number. So he's expanded the assassination program so that Trump doesn't have to, I guess. Uh, he's never apologized for drones, you know, for killing American citizens with drones without warrants. You know, uh, it's so, yeah, I, I think the left has swallowed a lot for, for eight years. And, you know, I, I, I just I, I don't think that, uh, you know, you it's not being perfect. It's essentially setting down a marker. Right. This is who he is. This is how he is. Sanders was at variance with, you know, many of the core principles of uh, the non-interventionist left. I mean, it has to be said, you, you can't, you know, it's like all of the pol Democratic politicians now standing mute as, you know, oil mercenaries um, and the National Guard and the North Dakota Sheriff's Departments are about to violently raid the camps at Standing Rock. Yeah, uh, I think I just I refuse to do it. You know, it's, it's just not uh, that's not who I am. And I don't I don't think it's you know, I'm not tied to the Democratic Party. I have no loyalty to them. Um, the reason the reason I think this is such an important subject to be discussing now is because I and I. <laughs> I don't know what it's like for some of the some of the people who are significantly older than me, people like you, Jeff. But, hey, thanks a lot. Yeah, no problem. But um, <laughs> well, come on, I got I got a baby at home. You just married off one of yours, so you know. Um, but the reason I the, what I'm saying is this: I have this really sick kind of feeling of deja vu right now. That that this is it, it's like you know. This has all this has all happened before. You know what I mean? It, it it makes me feel like how I felt, you know, at the very beginning of the Bush administration, where it was like, holy shit, this really is going to be as bad as I thought it was. Oh my god, this is even worse than I thought it was going to be. Oh my god, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. And then another eight years, and then now here we are, and I feel like we're replaying it over and over again. And 
I just, I wonder what is it going to take to break that cycle? And is there the potential for what currently we're calling the Sandernistas? Who knows what they'll be eight years from now, but to break that cycle, you know, I, I hate to I hate to sound so exasperated, but I just you know considering what Trump is going to do with coal and with fracking, considering the environmental protections that are going to be destroyed, you know, removed, considering all of the really awful and viciously reactionary uh, policies that are going to be implemented by the Trump administration, are we running out of time? Well, we're running out of time. No, there's there's no question. You know, the the climate clock is is ticking. And, you know, I think many of us who, you know, who are environmentalists and who followed, you know, uh, the, the, the climate situation closely. I mean, you know, it, it seems like we're well beyond the point of return. Counterpunch uh, tip. On that. Counterpunch tip for listeners. Don't read Robert Hunsaker's <laughs> columns if you want to <laughs> no, sleep at night. No, no, no. You don't want to sleep at night. I would say that, and I've been through, uh, you know, several of these dark swings, as as you call them. I remember being in D.C. in college, uh, just vividly, uh, when Carter lost the election in 1980, and it wasn't just Carter losing. It was very similar to this election. I had I didn't like Carter, um, but you know, the Democrats lost the Senate. You saw you know, a lot of luminaries, you know, liberal icons in the Senate go down and that 80 election. And it was like, Jesus, you know, how will we, you know, this is the end, you know, but what happened was that Reagan provided a, uh, a kind of a spark for the left. The left came alive during the period of, of Reagan. And, you know, not, it wasn't just the environmental movement. It was the sanctuary movement. It was this incredible movement that rose up against the Central American wars. It was the anti-nuclear power movement and um, the anti-nuclear weapons movement. All of these sort of rose up um, during the Reagan administration when they had lain dormant during Carter time. And then uh, all of them quietly went and died all, as soon as a Democrat came well, back. You know, into... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you that's... know, and that, and that's that was, and and I think that they were buried deeper. That's the problem. You know, they were buried deeper by by Clintonism, because you know there's been that drift away from the the political organizing skills that we learned in in the '60s and '70s. But that that's really where the hope lies. I think uh, is that. There will be resistance, I think, even on the, the sort of, you know, the Tea Party right, which is, you know, this, we have to understand that, you know, a lot of that despair and outrage is driven by economic insecurity. And as, you know, there's a lot of racism out there, no question. But that, that these are also people who are living on the economic margins. And Trump has made a lot of promises to them that he is not going to fulfill. And, such, and in fact, their situation's likely to become much more desperate. I mean, if we're looking at There's the no kind doubt. of no tax doubt. cuts yeah, exactly. that are going to be imposed in order to pay for them, they're going to attack entitlements. Yep. And, you know, what few frail strands of the social safety net that we have left are going to be gone. 
yep. probably, you know, within four years. And so that anger is going to increase. So you're going to have, I, I think, this really unprecedented situation where you're going to have resistance from both the left and the working class right. Well, here's At the my... same time, directed against the same administration. Here's now, my, here's my will only... they ever cross-fertilize? I don't know. Well, my problem with that, and I, I love it. I mean, it, give, it gives me, you know, flutters and, 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 and goosebumps as I, as I think about it. But the problem with that uh, scenario that you're laying out there is that I don't think that that's the most likely way that it would go. I think that the betrayals by Trump, which are, I think, a, a given, uh, the betrayals by Trump, which are inevitably going to upset um, a significant portion, if not the vast majority of the, uh, the, the movement that coalesced behind him, my fear is that uh, the way that they, the, the way that the administration handles that, is the way that fascists always handle these things: scapegoating. And the scapegoating and the misdirection and the directing of the anger towards the immigrants and Muslims and you know whoever yeah. else. I there's, mean, that is yeah. the echo. That is the echo yeah. of 1930s no Germany. I mean, that yeah. really is how it went down. And I mean, I hate. I, I don't like the constant. You know, Trump is hit. America is Nazi Germany in the early stages. I, I don't like that because it's not a perfect comparison. But from the solely from the perspective of the stab in the back, the notion of the stab in the back, that was so central to Nazi ideology and to Nazi propaganda. And I fear that the stab in the back concept, that's how the Trump people are going to play this. And that's so f dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. And, you know, it. It's, you know, a, a likely outcome, I grant you. I, I think, particularly because of they have the media apparatus to, uh, to essentially, you know, perpetrate that message. Uh, but they're also in the odd position of having, at this point, total control of the government. So, um, so it's all on them. Everything it's all it's all on them. So, they, you know, but, you know, you're right. Yeah, you know, I mean, they're, they're going to be, you know, look, we, we already see him now. You know, it's a new scapegoat every day, you know, coming off of his Twitter feed. Um, but I, I, I think the one hope is, you know, that these merciless economic forces have the there's the potential of a new class politics emerging out of this. There's also the the potential for something really ugly, yes. uglier than you know what we're now experiencing emerging out of it. And that's and that's and, actually what I've been noting for a long time on on this show and elsewhere that you know it was never really Trump himself that really scared me. It was the movement around Trump and segments of that movement in particular because the next guy who comes along, who's a better speaker, who's not this like, you know, ignorant blowhard with like a fifth graders vocabulary, but one who's really good and wears the nice suits and smiles really well and is camera friendly and all of those things. And he's sitting right now somewhere in some state legislature in Alabama or in Michigan or wherever he might be. And he's watching and he's waiting. And when the, all of this escalates and when that movement has been betrayed by their billionaire godfather they are going to turn further 
to the right, further in the extreme direction, or maybe I shouldn't say they will, but I think that's a likely outcome. And people on the left, people who are, uh, you know, progressive-minded, socialist, communist, anarchist, I don't think that they're really thinking through where this is going, nor are they preparing for that. Well, you're right. They're still shell-shocked. There's no leadership of the left. There's no (laughs) media apparatus. I I mean, we're really in in a period where— And that's where uh, Bernie could be. That's where he he could be. He could have been. He he could have been. Um, But— you know, he 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 cho- chose the the road more traveled. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's that's that should have been the subtitle to the book right there. Should have been, should have been. Well, maybe yeah, we can cross. Maybe up. I'm crossing it out right now. My copy. Yeah, that'll, that'll be for the Hillary book. Yes. Um, well, you know, I mean, we, uh, Coburn and I went through this right because when our our book on Al Gore came out, we were very late in getting it out. Uh, Al Gore, a user's manual, and you know, it was selling pretty well. And then, you know, he did the impossible and, and lost the election. And, uh, you know, we, you know, we were sitting there thinking, what are we going to do with, you know, these 10,000 copies of the book? And, you know, Alex's idea was that we would cross out user's manual and hand write in loser's manual. And <laughs> try and sell it. But nobody wanted to buy a book about Al Gore. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, oh. That, that's that's funny. All right. Well, we're just about out of time, but... Um, the last thing, the last thing that I just want to mention is that I think that people need to be thinking uh, strategically right now. I think that there's a lot of emotion, and I think that's good. I think that there's a lot of stupidity, and I think that that's very dangerous. Um, I think that a lot of people are being hypnotized by everything from vast conspiracy theories to, uh, you know, deflection and blaming. And uh, the one that I find particularly egregious, and I do want to get your take on this. I was speaking with Josh, uh, that's Joshua Frank, managing editor of Counterpunch. I was speaking with him about this a while back. Um, you know, the the this knee-jerk reaction of so many people uh, on the, you know, the, the, the radical left to say to everyone who's in the streets protesting against Trump, well, where the hell were you these last eight years? I didn't hear anything from you about Libya. I didn't hear anything from you about, you know, the jihadis in Syria. I didn't hear anything from you about, you know, fill in the blank of any of the egregious crimes that Obama committed. And my problem with that, my beef with that is that that's simply not good politics. That's not good activism because not only are you alienating people, you're making assumptions that people were all on the same uh, wavelength as you were and I think that that's a huge mistake I remember when I first stepped into the you know into politics in the in the early days of the Bush administration and I felt like you know nothing has ever happened until this point this is the beginning of history right now you know and and I think that a lot of young people especially have that feeling and I think that it's incumbent upon people who are veterans of anti-war movements and other movements throughout the decades I think that we are the ones who really need to be providing leadership and part of that leadership means accepting people for who they are welcoming them as part of the resistance and helping to shape their politics further you don't forget about those things you don't forget about the betrayals by liberals because they will always betray when the next liberal comes along but in the here and now i don't think it's good politics to simply push those people away 
No, it's stupid. I mean, what, protest shaming? I mean, it's the most ridiculous. Yeah, no, welcome them to the streets. Exactly. You know? I mean, who's been here all along? You know, it's the Catholic workers and the Quakers. You know, I mean, they're the one, they're the only ones that I've seen in, you know, our, our little community here out protesting drone strikes every day on intersections, you know. Um, but, okay, here's, here's a new movement uh, that's risen up, that's out on the streets. Uh, now what do we do? Here we all we're all together. What do we do now? Um, and, you know, that's the challenge. I, you, you can't look back, um, you know, not not with not with the people that are out on the streets with you. Politicians, you know, media figures hold them to account. You know, you want to you want to kick them out of this new movement. Fine. Get rid of them. But, you know. Uh, the young people and old who are who are worried, rightly worried about, you know, what's going to happen, who are now ready to get out on the streets and protest against it and resist. Welcome them to the resistance. I mean, Michel Foucault, uh, the French philosopher, said it's resistance that unites us. And, uh, you know, we I mean, yeah, no. You know, spread the word. That's my attitude. Absolutely. Come, all, all are welcome. Absolutely. Um well, particularly I, the nurses. I really should. I really should end the end the episode here. But I do have one other question, and and this is one that's really I think burning in my in my mind, and I have to ask it. And when Paul Street was on this show, I I pretended I I pretended that I do a segment called Hot Seat. So we're doing the Hot Seat segment here. Um, and insert theme music here. And Jeff, here's the question. How come you're a shill for Putin? <laughs> uh, that's that's a really good question. Thank because, you. Thank you. <laughs> I, you know, when I I went to sleep on Thursday night, you know, sort of tripping on tryptophans from the turkey, had troubled dreams, and like Gregor Sampsa, awoke on Friday morning, transformed into this vile creature known as a Putin troll, which I found out, you know, from the Washington Post. <laughs> which is where uh, you should find out information yeah, about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, of course, um, I, I said, when did I become a Putin troll? So I went back and, you know, searched my, you know, thousands of articles that I've written for, you know, one positive thing that I'd ever written about Putin. Um, couldn't find it. I mean, my, my two interactions with close personal reactions, interactions with Putin were going down the Colorado River with a river guide who had been threatened by him. <laughs> I wrote about this called Down the River with Vladimir Putin. And uh, another friend of mine who's an, uh, an anti-nuclear activist in Russia um, who was uh, arrested you know, tortured and, uh, you know, had his life threatened uh, with the connivance of Putin. I no, I don't know. You'll 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 have to tell me okay, uh, well, well, here's when my... I when I when I became this pro Putin uh, puppet. OK, here's my follow up. How come counterpunch is Russophobic? <laughs> how come we're Russophobic? Yeah. How come how come you guys are how come you guys are shilling for Putin and being a Russian propaganda front and simultaneously being anti-Russian, anti-Putin? It is. I, I, I you know, my, my brain begins to melt. You know, I, I, I don't I think was as Fitzgerald said, you know, the sign of a of a first rate intelligence is being able to hold 
two conflicting ideas in your mind at the same time. And, you know, I've just, uh, uh, I fail that test every time. <laughs> you are not a double thinker. You are not a double thinker. I'm not a double thinker, no. Well, you know, um, I'm, I'm, off, I'm of course referencing the Washington Post article and this uh, big, this big to-do about so-called fake stories and so-called Russian propaganda outfits like little old counterpunch. And, um, you know, the, the, the bottom line is that people need to be paying attention to this story because it has nothing to do with Russia. It has nothing to do with the alternative media. It has everything to do with the destruction of free speech. And that's really what this is about. And counterpunch, no matter what you want to say about it, no matter what criticisms you want to launch, at it counterpunch is a bastion of that free speech counterpunch is uncompromising and independent and we have jeff st Clair to thank for that so thank you jeff thank you eric and thank you listeners thank you very good <laughs> all right uh as always appreciate you uh appreciate you listening and i will speak to you again real soon